The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome everyone, and Chris would like to welcome our two venerables, Ajahn Chandiko and Ajahn Punadamo. I think I speak for everyone in saying that we're very grateful to have members of the Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha here at our city center, a rare and wonderful event. And tonight Ajahn Chandiko will be speaking on the pain and pleasure of waking up. Many of you know Ajahn Chandiko. He's been to Kamagran more than about a handful of times now, not more. And uh, he's led a retreat uh, last summer and again, hopefully this summer, if we have enough people. He's also the abbot of Amuti Monastery in uh, New Zealand. He ordained as a monk in 1990 uh, at Wat the international training monastery that Ajahn Chah established. And Ajahn Sameda was the first abbot of that monastery. But Ajahn Chandiko also uh, traveled and studied with many of the great Thai forest masters, the lineage that he's ordained in the Thai forest tradition, and uh, has written a couple books you can download. One I can recommend is The Honed and Heavy Acts, which is really a wonderful book, uh, both uh, Ajahn's words, but also a lot of the Buddha's teachings on concentration practice and Vipassana or inside practice and how they work together. So we're very grateful, Ajahn, for your teachings and that you came again. Hopefully, this will continue. Thanks. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Buddhangamang Sanghang Namasami In our tradition, it's the custom to speak off the cuff, not plan your talks ahead of time, just see whatever comes up and let it arise. Um, but then, of course, they like to have a title. <laughs> so about three months ahead of time, they say, well, in three months from now, what are you going to spontaneously talk about? <laughs> so tonight's spontaneous talk is on the pleasure and pain of waking up was broad enough to include everything. <laughs> In our realm of experience, what we call the world, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and cognizing, their mind. This is the world. This is the world we live in. And a very immediate result from that sense contact uh, comes up as uh, positive, negative, or neutral reaction to that. It's what we call Vedana. Vedana can happen at any sense doors. So you can have positive Vedana or negative Vedana. Uh, 
when we see something as, that is pleasant or beautiful, that's positive Vedana, uh, Sukha Vedana, happy Vedana, arising at the sense door of the eye. And all the sense doors work similarly. So there are certain types of things which are pleasant, and certain types of things which are unpleasant, and certain types of things which are pleasant and leading to awakening, certain types of things that are unpleasant and leading to awakening, and there's a whole lot in life that's arising in sense doors which actually doesn't lead to awakening. So it's good to have a certain amount of discernment with our sensory contact and what we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis because this this is all directing where we're going. Of course there are a lot of things which are unpleasant and not leading to awakening. Things which are, you know, like violence. Violence, anger, violence, uh, conflict. These things are obviously unpleasant. Uh, not leading to benefit. Uh, you've got things like stress in the workplace or stress in the family or um, just very difficult emotions and in and of themselves they are both unpleasant and not particularly helpful for awakening. So there's a lot of things that even from a worldly point of view we can see that are not particularly pleasant that are just part of life and we have to experience those sometimes. Uh, There's no human life that that doesn't sometimes experience pain, conflict, anger, uh, and even violence. Now there are some types of experience which are very pleasant but are also not leading to awakening. And so then for these, then we really start to have to use our wisdom, or our discernment uh, in a bit more of a refined way. Because certain things which are pleasant, of course, and it's, if we're not mindful, if we're not really thinking of the big picture, then we just tend to flow down the path of, of what's pleasant. Praise is pleasant, isn't it? Praise is a good one. and. If someone is, if we do receive praise, it's good to reflect. Now, is this really true or not? Because there might be a bit of a mechanism in our minds which is not entirely inclined to investigate whether this praise is true or not, whether it's justified or not. The praise in itself, it was very pleasant, but uh, our reaction to it, it's not necessarily leading to awakening. It's interesting, if you look in the suttas, when the Buddha talks about praise, fame, then he speaks about these things in a surprisingly harsh tone in terms of, you know, these are things which are devastating for your Dhamma practice. So, this is for all of us who sometimes get up here in the higher seat. (laughs) And it's good for us to be very mindful and discerning. And if we do get praise, then we just say, oh, it's just sound. It's just sound. It's just coming and going. 
So there are many things which are pleasant, obviously, which are not leading to awakening. Um, there's a whole range of things we can do in life which will be pleasant, but you know, what's the end result? We kind of leave you with an empty feeling. Um, I mean, you can just go from one pleasant thing to the next. There's really no end to it. Uh, with the amount of variety. But what tends to happen is that you need a bigger sense hit each time because you get used to a certain level of, of something that's pleasant, but then it just doesn't give the same hit anymore. And you need something more, a little bit more intense and you know, something different. And, and that's part of why that doesn't work to lead to a real satisfying happiness. It, it, uh, it just doesn't have that ability to fulfill its promise. The promise of, well, if I just gratify this, if I just get this, if it's just this way, if I just get the right situation, the right relationship, the right sunset, whatever, then, uh, then I'll be happy and content. But what happens? You know, if we really look at our life after a period of years, well, I did that and was nice, and then it led to that, and it was okay, but then I got bored, and then it led to that, and then that didn't work, I got bored, and then, and, and where does it stop? Stopping is important in practice, being able to just stop. Otherwise, we can experience a lot of really pleasant things and still feel a bit empty. Life can feel a bit empty. Say, well, where's the... No, this is not politically correct. I was going to say, where's the beef? (laughs) Wrong crowd for this. An easy example is, you know, it can be kind of pleasant, I remember, to zone out in front of a TV for a few hours watching mindless inane programs. I've never watched reality TV, but I, I'm assuming that that's mindless inane programming. <laughs> watching hours and hours of mindless inane reality TV, Ozzy Osbourne's life, for example. <laughs> and just thinking, oh, this is kind of pleasant, it's kind of interesting, but what's the end result after hours of doing that? It's like, well, <clears throat> where's the fulfillment? Did it lead to awakening? No, usually it leads to drowsing off, dropping off, falling asleep. So there's a lot in life which is seductive in that way, and it's good just to just keep aware. Just watch out for those things which are pleasant and they're always kind of inviting. I'm pleasant. Hi, I'm pleasant, follow me. And then, well, but what's the end result? Is it really leading to clarity? Um, Is it leading to a sense of inner peace? Is it leading to understanding life better? 
Is it leading on to understanding ourselves better? Is it really leading to happiness? And these are questions. Well, I can't answer for anyone. These are things that we have to find out for ourselves. And that's the whole point of Buddhist practice, because it really brings us back to this life. And we all live in very different worlds. So you have to investigate your own world. What works? What really leads to happiness? And then you've got things which are unpleasant and unfortunately leading to awakening. <laughs> It'd be nice if this whole category didn't really exist. But, you know, there are a lot of things which are They go against the grain. You know, in, in the forest tradition, we don't talk about going with the flow. We talk about going against the stream. Going against the stream of desire. Because when you flow down that direction, then it just takes you further and further into the rapids. But if you're going sort of the, the salmon scenario, the salmon practitioner, you're going upstream, upstream and uh, finding the source going back to the source even when we're just sitting still something very simple what happens sit still for a while you're not really doing anything. It doesn't seem very fair, but all, all of a sudden it starts to get uncomfortable. And if you're patient with it, then it actually becomes painful. You're not doing anything. Just sitting still. But when we're developing meditation, that's one thing that most of us have to deal with. And how we deal with the discomfort can be uh, very helpful, very beneficial, very much leading to awakening. For example, if you're sitting meditation and you start to get a bit of discomfort in your knees or, or your ankles or your back, if you just shift your posture constantly all the time, the mind's never going to settle down. It will never settle down. It's just following that habit of running away from discomfort. Because that's the easy way to flow downstream, just running away from discomfort. But when discomfort starts to arise, then bring mindfulness to the whole scenario around the body and mind. And develop this quality of patience I mean, patience is a quality which is very good to have in almost all situations in life. And we can start by developing it just with our own knees, our ankles, our back, wherever it starts to feel uncomfortable when we're sitting. Just sitting still, following our breath, paying attention to our meditation wood, developing some form or theme of meditation, and discomfort starts to arise. Now the first reaction, uh, which is helpful, is just to ignore it. 
in that way. You just you maintain your awareness on your meditation object, just stay with your meditation object, and there will be an, uh, an awareness of a background discomfort. Now, the longer we sit, that discomfort may intensify. And at some point, it becomes more obvious or more It's, it's not in the periphery anymore. It's front and center. So at that point, it's still good not to move. Be patient. But you can then make the conscious choice that I will take the pain as my meditation object at this point. I'll set down uh, the anapanasati or mindfulness of the breathing and will take the pain as a meditation object and then from that point on you just investigate our relationship with the discomfort and we can learn a lot it still hurts but if we're if we're mindful then we can learn a lot from the whole relationship with pain as soon as we think of it as my pain or I hurt then then it, it really hurts. But if we just investigate, well, what is pain? What is discomfort? And where is it exactly? Try to locate it you know, in your mind's eye, with your mind closed, with your eyes closed, and uh, try to locate exactly where it is. And is it is it in one place? Does it move around? Is it pressure? Is it tension? Is it vibrating? Is it heat? What exactly is pain? And you can get so interested in it that even though it still hurts, you kind of forget that it hurts because it's so interesting. And then that practice works if we have enough mindfulness that we can see it objectively. Enough mindfulness to be able to separate, well, this is pain, and this is the body, and this is the awareness, that which is watching, that which knows. And as long as we're able to maintain that much objectivity, we're capable of holding quite a bit of pain and, and still learning from it. Now, at some point, our mindfulness is, is, is going to reach its um, limit of how, how strong it is because the pain will tend to increase as we sit longer. And then instead of being able to objectively see it as this is the body, this is the pain, it all kind of comes together and it just feels like, ah, oh, I hurt. And at that point, it's no longer beneficial to just grit your teeth and force your way through it. Um, that's not really helpful. And that can then easily lead to injuring oneself. So that's, that's good to know. And that's the time to mindfully shift to posture and then start again practicing. So if we can learn to be patient with pain, if we can learn to see it not as my pain, not just identifying with it automatically, but seeing well, pain is merely pain. There is pain in the world. And then all these lessons that we learn with physical pain we're able to take into the whole realm of emotions, emotional pain. 
difficult situations that we experience in life. And that's where it's really beneficial. Because how we respond to the pain can either make peace with the pain or it can lead to a whole lot more suffering added on top of it. So this is one example of things which are unpleasant but actually do lead to an increase in wisdom, lead to an increase in understanding, lead to awakening. There are lots of things in our lifestyle as a monk which are designed to not necessarily be pleasant, um, but are, can be very useful. Like the whole monastic lifestyle, um, it's not set up to, uh, to comfort us, keep us in our comfort zone. I mean, if someone, someone, someone thinks that, oh, it would be nice to be a monk or a nun, just sitting in peace and comfort all day. People bring you food. You don't have to work. You don't have to worry about your retirement money disappearing. You don't have any in the first place. Um, yeah, it's not quite like that. The whole, the whole lifestyle is actually designed to confront everything in our heart which is not radiant and loving and kind and everything in our heart which is is not pure what we what we call the chilesis you can translate them as however you want sometimes they translate it as defilements but in that sense defilements is a good translation because when you talk about the purity of heart then things like anger it defiles that purity So the whole lifestyle is, is actually designed to confront that. And it's designed uh, not just in monastic life, but you know the whole path of practice, whether you're living a household life or a monastic life, it doesn't really matter. But if you're really practicing and purifying your heart, there's no way that you're not going to be able, you know, there's no way that you're going to escape confronting difficult stuff. So when that happens, it's not a bad sign. It's not like there's something wrong. Uh, it might be a sign that you know, things are really working. And so it's it's good to remember that. It's a bit like uh, you know having a messy closet. You know, opening it and cleaning it out uh, it tends to look messier before it looks cleaner. Sometimes you're sitting meditation, all the stuff starts bubbling to the surface. Think I used to be more peaceful before I meditated. You blame it on the meditation. Bad technique. But but if the practice is, is really working the way it should, then it does have that effect, and uh, yeah, it takes a certain amount of courage and integrity to be able to face stuff. And Hey, granted, it's not always pleasant, but sometimes the, the greatest uh, lessons we can learn in life uh, can come from them. I 
talked about praise. Now, criticism. Now, criticism, I mean, unless you're really masochistic, uh, criticism is usually experienced as unpleasant. But how we react to that, you know, it's really up to us. It can, it can actually be very beneficial. And uh, the Buddha said, if someone points out something to us, whether they do it skillfully and tactfully or not, if they point out something to us which is true, uh, something that we can work on, something in which we can improve, they've really offered us something special. They've given us uh, something special. And in that way, oh, there's a lot of people in my life who could be our teachers. All these wonderful, kind people who would criticize us. And But don't just assume that it's true either. If someone does criticize us, or you know, we receive criticism, watch the watch the uh, both the tendency to be blindly defensive and blindly accepting or assuming that the criticism is true. Because sometimes criticism isn't true. You just reflect: well, is this true or not? And if it's not true, hey, no problem. And if the criticism is true, hey, no problem. Then we've got something to work on. They've done a little bit of work for us instead of having to dig down and find that in ourselves. They've very graciously pointed that out to us, saved us a bit of time. So physical discomfort in daily life, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's just a matter of. Um, yeah, being patient with situations. Recently, I was um, teaching a retreat uh, for training bhikkhunis, fully ordained Buddhist nuns, uh, all of them uh, living here in the United States. We gathered in California. And there was one old Sri Lankan bhikkhuni who'd been in, in Minneapolis. She actually lives in, in Twin Cities, uh, who had been her she was 74 years old and been ordained for a few years and, and we went out to this property and there's no facilities we're all just camping in tents and she is not a camper <laughs> you know, and at the beginning she wasn't a happy camper <laughs> she was very happy to be there but she was like I only camp in hotel rooms. <laughs> Very difficult for me. Uh, but but she was just such a trooper. Uh, and in the end, such an inspiration to the rest of us. And so lovable that, uh, that it all worked out fine. And, you know, we did whatever we could to... Uh, help, but really it was just in her own mind after a few days uh, just through being patient she started to like it out there and then by the end she didn't want to leave. <laughs> so that's another case of you know things which are sometimes uncomfortable but can be very beneficial. And then you get into the realm of things which are, this is the good category, 
things which are pleasant and leading to awakening. Now, for example, if you're sitting in meditation and for some reason your body's not feeling pain, <laughs> and you're able to experience maybe a, a bit of inner peace and quietude. Let's say the, the flow of thoughts is it's kind of subsided and calmed down a bit. And the, the, the mind's energy, instead of being dispersed and distracted, has just settled down. And yet there's still very clear awareness. Now, that naturally gives rise to a sense of joy and happiness coming out. The body starts feeling light and buoyant. Our mind is feeling light and buoyant and, and very clear. And that's the type of happiness which is both very pleasant and leading to awakening. Because if you can start to enjoy meditation, then you're going to want to do it more. There's a natural inclination to delve deeper and deeper into meditation. And fortunately, the way it works is that the, the deeper you go into meditation, the more peaceful it gets, the more, the more joy is released. It's like there's innate, uh, radiant joy. Or it's just that all of the confinements of our own perceptions start to temporarily dissolve and you get a feeling of spaciousness and just that, that lack of confinement already gives a feeling of freedom and space and relief and happiness starts coming up. Now, it's fortunate it's that way. It wouldn't necessarily have to be that way. The, the natural law that uh, the, the more pure our heart becomes, the more happiness arises. I mean, it could be the other way, which would be a real drag. <laughs> you know, you could, you know the, more, the more pure our heart becomes, the more unpleasant life is. You imagine, no one would want to practice. It's difficult enough as it is. So fortunately, there there is this natural unfolding of the heart which gives rise to a joy which the Buddha said, you don't have to fear this type of joy. There are a lot of types of happinesses which the Buddha is saying, well, watch out for that. You know, yes, there's definite gratification there, but there's also a danger lurking in there. It doesn't come just you know, free and pure. There's a certain payback that you have to pay for a lot of happinesses in life. But for this type of happiness, which just bubbles up from the purity of your own heart, then there's no real drawbacks. No real drawbacks. That's a sign that the meditation is working. The Buddha said, Nati Santi Parang Sukhan. There is no happiness better than that of peace. There is no happiness that transcends that of, of peace. So as the mind becomes more and more peaceful, experience a more and more satisfying happiness. And this then can, can work like a carrot. 
in our practice because our minds are, are they're, they're trained, they're programmed to, to seek happiness. And if we can just get it on the right track, you know, kind of get it off the track of seeking happiness in reality TV and just kind of pull it over to the track of seeking happiness in purity of heart, then, you know, it can start to develop some momentum there and it becomes really fun, peaceful. And then even letting go becomes pleasant. There are a lot of letting goes for the the confronting of holding on can be difficult. And that's one of the things which is unpleasant but beneficial. There are a lot of things that we may face in, in life where it's uh, yeah, we don't want to let go. We kind of see, yes, this is leading to pain. This is this is not helpful. And yet well, it's what I identify with. It's what I know. It's better than the unknown. At least I know what it is. You know, if I let go of that, then, then what? It's the unknown, and that can be scary. So there's a natural process of, as the mind becomes more and more peaceful, Thoughts subside, and initially you just get moments of this or short spans of this, and then uh, maybe periods where it is internally quiet. And you might get periods where it starts to feel bright, like internally bright. And at this point, it's it's good to know a, a couple of different things. I mean, one is that if you want to take the meditation deeper, at this stage you can't force it deeper. You just have to be perfectly content with the way it is. It's almost counterintuitive. When it's starting to go good, just be perfectly content. And that's actually the thing which brings it deeper. Otherwise, we get in there and we try to make it deeper, try to do this and do that. We actually destroy the peace. And the other thing is, if happiness does start to arise, even if the mind does start to become bright, even if interesting things start kind of appearing in the field of vision, just ignore it. Just stay with your meditation object. If it's the breath, you just stay with your breath. So when interesting stuff starts to happen, you say, okay, well, that's nice. That's I'm on the right track. It's working. That's good. But what gave rise to that happiness, that joy, the sense of brightness, was the fact that we had a continuity of awareness developing on our breath, for example. And that's the cause and condition for that to happen. And if we take away that cause and condition by focusing on the result, then it doesn't take too, too long before the things start unraveling and falling apart. So for a long time, just say, that's fine. Well, whatever happens, it's fine. 
just let it go. Whatever arises, fine, just let it go. Pleasant things arise, just fine, let it go. Unpleasant things arise, just fine, let it go. You clearly know it, accept it fully without judging it as good or bad. And then if we don't grab it, it's going to pass by itself. And in this way, we just stay on our breath and develop this contentment with it. We're not expecting anything. And if you do have a pleasant experience, if you do have a powerful experience, then it's easy to have a little bit of hope or a little bit of expectation the next time you meditate that it's going to be the same. But I can guarantee you that hope or that expectation is not the cause and condition to give rise to that. In fact, it will get in the way. So it's just a matter of patiently sticking with the fundamentals. And then it's, it's almost like without really doing anything other than sticking with the fundamentals, yeah, more happiness starts to come because there's a sense of just being perfectly content with one breath. Something very simple. Something very natural. Just breathing in. So how much do we need to be happy? Well, just breathing in one breath. Just breathing out. You can actually be pretty happy just doing that. Very simple. So that will gradually lead deeper and deeper into the practice, uh, lead to clarity. And then it leads to a, uh, a natural understanding, even without intentionally investigating something. When the mind is clear and peaceful, it's it's like we just see life more clearly. We see things in, in balance. We in, intuitively, we, we start to get in touch with what's really important in life. And our values start to balance each other out. So that we actually start to live more in, t- in tune with the values which are, are most important to us. So this is the type of process that we try to kickstart in meditation. And then once it's going, it still needs regular effort. We have to keep putting effort in. So it's not just a matter of just be aware, just be mindful. It's not the whole path. It's not just about mindfulness. It's not the noble one full path. Right mindfulness. Right effort is very important in, in putting putting effort and energy, taking an active role in keeping this whole process going. You know, is essential. And right effort and right mindfulness have to be there for every step of the Noble Eightfold Path for it to work. So in this way, after practicing for a number of years, sometimes it's interesting just to look back and, and 
get a certain perspective and you think, oh, I've been through a lot of experiences. Some of them pretty intense, either intensely pleasant or intensely unpleasant. But hopefully if we focus on on, uh, the side which is beneficial and leading to awakening, then whether it's pleasant or unpleasant doesn't become the the defining factor in our life. The defining factor in our life becomes whether it's leading to awakening or not. That's how we base our decisions. That's that's what motivates us. And that's what leads to our happiness. So I offer this reflection this evening. So we still have time. If anyone has any questions, I'm happy to answer questions. Well, one is just really looking at the suffering of it. Just honestly looking at the pain of it, admitting it, because what we pay attention to will tend to inform us. You know, we can't really let go of anything as long as we see some some benefit in it. Yeah. As long as, as long as we really see, uh, as long as we we perceive only the positive part of it, then it's really difficult to let go. Impossible. And what we do in meditation a lot, what's great about mindfulness, is it's just paying attention to everything. Because normally in life we tend to pay attention to one aspect of something. For example, just the pleasant part, or just the part that we identify with. By paying, having a continuity of awareness in daily life, in our meditation, then then we see the whole range of, of things, and if, and then we can clearly also see the drawbacks, the pain and really feel it. Because we can't just convince ourselves to let go. Maybe it might be um, an addiction, or it might be addiction to an unhealthy relationship. You're thinking, I know this is bad for me, and yet I can't let it go. So certainly mindfulness is, is just the, the first thing. I mean, really be brutally honest and just look at the unpleasant side of it. 
because there's a natural tendency that when things are really painful, you just want to shut down. You don't want to look at it. You want to run away from it. Run away from looking at it. And say, yes, I know it's there, but I don't want to look at it. Even if, even if you kind of know better. Still, it's a very deeply ingrained habit of mind. So just really looking at something totally, that gives more information to the heart and the mind. And then it will naturally say, oh, that's painful. <laughs> I don't want what's painful. And in this way, we can use that, that natural inclination of the mind towards pleasure and, and moving away from pain to, to, our, to the advantage of awakening and letting go of things which are harmful. I was going to ask her question, so I want to ask the follow-up question. Okay. <laughs> that I was really struck by that um, holding on, instead of looking at letting go, holding on peace. And um, what came up for me is I've been holding on to grief for seven years. And um, as you were speaking, I realized that it was um, underneath, the, underneath the grief is uh, the self-concept that I am loyal. Loyal. Mm-hmm. Then it's not really about grieving the thing, it's that something. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, How do I and if you, if there's something that we're really holding on to, and and especially if it's something that we know is not good for us, or okay, maybe the time has really come to let it go, then. Then look. Well, what are we getting from it? If we weren't getting something from it, we would have already let it go. I mean, even if something is pleasant, even if something is is obvious suffering, there can be a certain part of us that likes that because it's familiar, or we can identify with it as a person who's suffering. I mean, identification. Even with suffering, from the from the viewpoint of of the kilesas, from the viewpoint of self, identification with suffering is still better than not identifying not identifying with our sense awareness, because you can get a really good self going with pain and suffering, you know, unwholesome type of suffering. Oh, I am a sufferer. So investigate what we're getting from it. I mean, even something like anger, you would think, oh, well, you know, that would naturally be something we wouldn't want to hold on to. It's, it's immediately unpleasant. But there's actually a lot in anger which can be deceptively attractive. For example, the, the self-perception that I'm right. I'm right and they're wrong. And they're wrong because I'm right. You know, kind of creates this whole dualistic, um, self-inflating type of uh, relationship. Would you elaborate on um, going against the flow of the stream or moving upstream? Um, and I ask that because um, 
recently I, I heard of the concept of, of resistance being going upstream and, and to let go of resistance is to just fall. Right. And, Well, sometimes we mix metaphors. <laughs> there are certain times when <laughs> going upstream is going up the floor. The flowing upstream is. Uh, in this particular metaphor, it depends on what the water symbolizes. <laughs> Uh, if the water symbolizes the flow of desire, then then it's easy just to kind of get on an inner tube and flow with it and say, wherever it takes me, it's fine, life's great, oh, this is desire this, desire that, desire this. And, and meanwhile, the Buddha is on the shore and he's saying, there's a waterfall coming up. We're like pessimists. <laughs> 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 my inner tube, uh, floating down the river desire, and it's looking good. And uh, monks are saying, there's rabbits up ahead. He's saying, pessimists, kill joy. And, uh, but then, you know, and if it wasn't the, the case that the flow, the river of desire, had rapids and waterfalls, then it wouldn't really be such a problem. But even from the, from the viewpoint of trying to maximize happiness in our life, then it's just kind of reality of what happens. If you flow, if you really don't flow down the river of desire, uh, sometimes you can get pretty beat up on the rapids. And then, uh, and at that point, you can still maybe swim ashore, but it's a lot harder. But once you go over the waterfall, it's too late. <laughs> so that's the kind of, that's how we use that particular simile. Although I, I added the salmon pit. That was just, that's not traditional. <laughs>
So I'm in this place right now where I, my pleasure does sort of come from the inner heat. And I have lots of thoughts that still flow up. They're not disturbing thoughts. And when they are disturbing, I sit with that. And then eventually they subside. But the only thing is that I'm not really interested in focusing on my breath anymore. Because there's no real incentive to do so because everything is just arriving and falling, and that's very interesting to watch for me. And so recently I tried specifically to focus harder on my breath and just stick with that reality. But that sort of got me back to this place of confusion of what do I do and sort of a neurotic self trying to force myself to follow through this precepts and follow. Uh, a single path that's not necessarily tailored to what I'm feeling. So I guess that's my question. I'm in this place right now. What do I do in practice that requires more personal consultation with someone and more consideration? But that's what I'm wondering. Good question. Now, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong or unwholesome or bad about pleasure per se, right? And there's certainly nothing good necessarily about pain, good or bad. This is this is stuff that just arises beyond our control. We see something, um, a beautiful tree. If we have, the tree itself is not beautiful, it's just color, shape, and form. It's just doing what it's doing out there in nature. But if we have a perception of it as beauty, uh, very quickly it will come up, like immediately come up, oh, that's pleasant. Oh, it's so green. Oh, it's soothing. Right? Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Fully enlightened people have that. But if we then take the next step and say, well, I'm going to devote my life to seeking that, then that doesn't work because <clears throat> we get pretty much an even mix in humanity between uh, pleasant sense contact and unpleasant sense contact. And devoting ourselves to either say, seeking pleasure and running away from pain or in some perverse way kind of seeking pain and running away from pleasure, either of those are not going to be helpful. So, mindfulness is non-judgmental. If, it, if you see something or experience something that's pleasant, okay, it's fine. Um, what, what is the criteria for making the judgment about whether we should do something or not do something, have a dessert or not have a dessert? It has more to do with whether it's beneficial or not not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So, uh, our attitude towards practice is very important. And at every step, then, it, it is possible to kind of take take something good, but, but tweak it a little bit in a way that um, it's actually reinforcing the self. 
The Buddhist practice is definitely not about torturing ourselves. Even though many people look at our lifestyle and they don't believe me. Say, you guys torture yourselves. Look at you. Um, we don't even get desserts in the evening. Then <laughs> <coughs> 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 baby, yes. Um, So it's not about torturing yourself, but there are certain things which are useful. Right? Keeping precepts is generally useful and beneficial. It, uh, it, uh, it's just like breaks. It stops us from uh, doing things which would be bad karma, that would, things that would harm ourselves or harm other people. Right? So they're not intended as like punishments. Not at all. They're just sort of limits on the stream of desire. Uh, a lot of our lifestyle, or a lot of Buddhist practice, it kind of comes down to simplifying things. And every time we simplify something, then we usually have to give something up as well. And that giving up something can, for some people, feel like torture. But you can also just look at it from the perspective of what a relief give something out. It's very pleasant. You give up all the things which lead to stress and anxiety and suffering. So I think that spoke to a couple of the things you brought up. Was there anything else? concentration and jhanas uh, to realize enlightenment. You yeah, better have to find an enlightened person to ask. <laughs> what did the Buddha say? Um, the great majority of the suttas indicate that yes, you need at least the experience of first jhana uh, to attain even the first stage of enlightenment. And for the third stage of enlightenment, anagami, then you would need the experience in the four jhanas. Now, now there are, are some kind of, there are a smaller percentage of 
quotes or teachings where you could, where you might be able to find the opposite. But even in those, you know, I've done a, quite a bit of research on this, and um, it really does seem like, in terms of the text, like this, the, uh, the suttas, uh, the scriptural evidence, uh, is pretty heavily in favor of yes, it, it actually is necessary. <coughs> Now, my experience in the forest tradition, being with uh, masters in Thailand, is that I, I haven't met a, well, every master that has had the reputation of being enlightened uh, within kind of inner circles of, you know, you never know for sure, but sort of within certain circles you get a general idea of who is and who isn't, to some degree. <laughs> but I've never, I've never met anyone who didn't have really good smile. So that's um, sort of led me to the uh, conclusion that it's very, very important. Also, just in my own experience, even on a very minor, superficial level, I can just see the immediate correspondence between when the mind is calm immediately it's conducive to insight, seeing clearly. It works both ways. You know, when we have to have some wisdom already just to start off, otherwise we, we wouldn't even be interested. You know, we have a little insight, and then that leads to letting go, and that leads to more peace, and it gradually deepens that way. Deeper the peace, the greater the insight. The greater insight, the more letting go. The deeper the peace, etc. But uh, so then the question is, well, how far does that process have to go before it actually you can have insight that's deep enough to be what they call in the suttas sotapanna or stream entry? Here we are back to the stream. But that's a different stream. <laughs> different water. Um, that's, that's my experience, that uh, uh, it is at, at, at the level of jhana. You, you need um, to get the, uh, the peace and concentration to that level, that depth, uh, for the inside to go deep enough. Because the process of, of it is going to include both, right? So let's say you're trying to, you're, you're taking your breath as your meditation object, but you can't just tell your mind not to think. You know, it, uh, thoughts are echoes from all of the conversations and information that we pick up throughout the day. So it just kind of keeps spewing out thoughts. And uh, so let's say we're, we've got most of our awareness on our breath, but you might still have this periphery of thoughts kind of going, just kind of coming and going, coming and going in the background. You kind of know they're there. But as long as we don't kind of jump out at and grab one, then they just flow by. And it's not really a problem. Uh, and they will gradually 
kind of gradually calm down. Uh, if you take the thoughts as a meditation object, you can learn a lot about it. But it's very important to keep that sense of objectivity because thoughts are so um, inviting and seductive to go right into the thought and then you've lost that. You don't see a thought as a thought anymore. You're just in the thought. So to the degree that you have spacious awareness and then within that a thought arises and you see, okay, well that's okay, it's kind of a mental energy. Uh, it's kind of a, a picture or a word or a conversation or whatever it is. Uh, it's, that's what I call a thought. And if it's, you know, if we don't go out and grab it, then it has a, a certain uh, manifestation of being the result of karma. And then, it, you know, if we don't feed it, then it just dissipates. And that can be very insightful because we can be so oriented around thought, uh, give thought so much importance. We, we can identify, we can get so much identification, sense of self, from our thoughts. But when we start to clearly see, it's just, it's just an echo. It's just a reverberation in the mind. Uh, it's just mental energy. Thought's just a thought. Then, uh, we realize, well, there's actually something more profound than that. That's not who we are. <coughs> and usually, in developing meditation, you'll have both happening. Maybe not simultaneously, but at different times. And there are some times where, you know, you're, you're trying to focus on your breath, but some thoughts are just so sticky. They don't just come and go. They come and then they stick. And uh, if that's the case, then you can consciously decide, all right, I'm going to take this thought as my meditation object. Why can't I let it go? Why does it keep coming back? Again, we come back to the world. What am I getting from it? What am I holding on to? What am I attaching to here? What am I identifying? Well, or, or maybe what am I afraid of? Because that could be a reason why we hold on to something. What am I afraid of? And if we weren't afraid, we'd just let it go. My question is about, and I don't remember the whole chain of dependent origination, but I think at the bottom of it is ignorance. It seems like you can trace back everything down to ignorance. My question is, how does ignorance arise? From the five hindrances. Even ignorance has its cause and condition. Even ignorance has its food. We talk about the five hindrances in meditation, sensual desire, ill will, uh, salt and chakra, that kind of cloudiness, uh, sleepiness, uh, restlessness and worry or remorse, and doubt. And these are things which stir up the mind so that it can't experience peace. And that's actually what leads to ignorance. So that's why we give so many Dhamma talks on the five hindrances. At least that's a place where we can really start to work. And when the five hindrances are 
even just temporarily subdued, calmed down, not in our face, then we're starving ignorance. And this is one reason why why just samadhi in itself is already very purifying and does encourage wisdom, does create a very strong foundation for wisdom. Because samadhi is defined as the absence of the five hindrances. Just that clarity is starving ignorance. It's not uprooting it yet, but it's weakening it. Can we look at ignorance as Ignorance is just one way of translating it. And you can also translate it as mm, wrong knowing. It's not just not knowing or not understanding something, but it can also be like act of wrong knowing, which is confusion or delusion. Delusion works as well. It's almost like a uh, <coughs> Someone who is psychotic will have delusions. The things which generally in the in in the mainstream we, we agree this is real and this is not real. And depending on the majority of the people. And those people who see things which aren't real, well, those are, that's delusional. Uh, but there's a lot, you know, I mean then you've got the fully enlightened arhans. And, and and all the rest of us, and uh, this, you know, their definition of what's delusional is very different than the mainstream. So ignorance is kind of like uh, misunderstanding things or seeing things as seeing things as real that aren't, that isn't real, or misinterpreting them significantly. Real insight is more just a seeing rather than a thinking about something. And in say in meditation, a situation like that, we don't have to verbalize it so much. Or even if the question arises, you know, we, we don't have to. It's not like a an, an, uh, an analytical series, you know, where kind of rationally work through something. But you can just place the thought in consciousness or place that idea, even if it doesn't manifest in words. What am I holding on to? What am I afraid of? And then just watch. And and maintain that sense of spaciousness. And that can be very helpful. Especially, you know, there are times where 
we don't know which way to go in life or we're working with some difficult issue instead of trying to think it all through it, it often you get a more accurate helpful answer if you just make your mind but just allow yourself to be calm have a sense of spaciousness and maybe just ask a simple question what am I holding on to or what am I afraid of and then just see what happens and it's not like you're asking a thought to come as an answer immediately but uh, just watch your heart or just you know just or don't have any expectations and see what happens so that's more the way I approach it it's more like seeing and feeling rather than thinking Once again, Ajahn, thank you very much for teaching the Dharma. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.